With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast. And here are your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast, Inside the Tour. I'm Nina Pantic, and I'm joined by my co-host, Irina Falcone. Hey, guys. Today we are finally back and recording a podcast about the Australian Open, fittingly, which just wrapped up. We're going to cover some of the most interesting storylines, maybe not the most famous ones, but the ones that caught our attention. We'll start with the champions, obviously, but talk about the Pablo Corina Busta incident, the Serena Williams foot fault, a few breakthroughs, including Daniel Collins, Amanda Anisimova, Francis Tiafo, as well as the, the new 10-point tiebreaker deciding set and uh, all the drama surrounding Garbine Muguruza and Johanna Conta's match ending at 3.15 a.m. Just a few little highlights and things and a way to reflect on what's been crazy two weeks, even though neither one of us got to be there for it. So the Australian Open just finished literally less than a day ago. Um, so I think it's very obvious place to start is with the champions. We have Naomi Osaka won her second Grand Slam in a row. Kind of validating herself, I think. Not just, I mean, I think she won the US Open hands down, but a lot of the drama overshadowed that. And this time she kind of won it without any drama. And the men's side, we have Novak Djokovic, career record setting seventh Australian Open title, took out Nadal in a very anticlimactic final. Turns out the women's final of Osaka and Kvitova was longer than the men's final of Nadal and Djokovic, which is kind of a massive curveball. I did not expect that. And it's kind of tough to watch the Australian Open from America. It really makes it a challenge. You got to be really, really committed or really willing to watch something that's already been live and you already know the result of. You have to be really committed or you just have to be a night owl that really does not concern themselves with how much sleep they're getting because they're just going to be watching tennis all night. Um, to be honest, I was, I don't know, part of me was actually really quite sad when it finished. I was just like, I'm so used to like getting done with the day at like 7 p.m., seeing that first match, which is 11 a.m. their time, like... I will admit, uh, Sunday morning came and I was like, kind of sad, that's it. But yeah, I mean, wow, hands down to Naomi. I was watching some of her matches. I watched her first round, second round, third round. Like, She was just playing some good freaking tennis. And don't get me wrong, Petra was playing lights out too. I mean, the way that she dismantled a few of her, play- a few of her opponents, I was just in awe. I mean, she really calls it her second career. And it's just like, just like Ashley Barty, whom she played. I mean, granted, Petra played another level of tennis during that match, but Ashley coming back after playing cricket and just deciding to, hey, I'm going to win a couple slams and doubles and, you know, I'm going to come back and pretty much have my second career of tennis. I should really look into that. That's that's the way to go, clearly. That's clearly the way to go. It's worked out really well for both of them, obviously for very different reasons. What I also like about Kvitova was that she didn't drop a set on the way to the final and neither did Nadal. They both ended up being finalists, but it just goes to show, like, you could have an incredible two weeks and just be playing lights out for six matches, but the seventh match is really the only one that matters. 
I also, I think it was interesting with her, though, is that she, I don't know, was it kind of more of a subtle way to the final? I felt like the biggest story was Osaka. The biggest story was Serena. Um, Daniel Collins got so much attention. Even even Barty, because she's obviously Australian, got so much attention. Kudova was kind of more of a quiet, I don't know, sauntered her way into the final. And I think that's even more dangerous looking ahead because Wimbledon will be her bread and butter. And, I mean, maybe not the French Open, but Wimbledon, she could easily get away with the winner there. Yeah, I honestly, when I think of Petra Kvitova throughout the Australian Open, I called her my silent assassin. Because she would come out, I mean, she's always been pretty low-key. I mean, you don't really see her and like, oh my god, like, she's a she's a Grand Slam champion, she's won all these titles or whatever. I mean, she is a very accomplished player. But when you see her, you know, she's very low-key, she keeps to herself, very down-to-earth. She doesn't really, she's not like a huge player that you're talking about a lot all the time. And with her resume, I mean, you should be talking about her. She's won two Wimbledons, and that's not an easy feat. Granted, um, she's a finalist here. It was a very close match. I feel like, I mean, I was gutted for her because of her story. I mean, to come back after a knife attack on her hand and not thinking that she could ever hold a racket again and be able to be in the finals of an Australian Open two years later... That's pretty extraordinary. It is. It's, it's an insane story. Her coach was actually interviewed. The WTA is doing a massive push to interview more of the coaches. And he was saying, oh, people kind of don't take her, not take her as seriously, but they don't really notice her as a threat because she's kind of a smiley, friendly, happy person. And he's been trying to get her to tap into her killer instincts on the court, which clearly paid off because she kind of gets into this. He called it a, a bubble or a zone. So I think that's a big thing for her. Um, a couple of the other things that stood out. I mean, obviously, the champions are the, the, the biggest and most important part of this tournament. But there were some crazy things going on. I can't get over the Serena foot fault. And it was such a thing that 10 years ago when, I mean, this is messed up to bring up. But 10 years ago at the U.S. Open when Serena got a call the foot fault, she went absolutely crazy and yelled at the lineswoman and got defaulted. And there was this huge, huge scandal. Well, this time she gets a foot fault, doesn't even blink, doesn't even hesitate, doesn't even question it, and then turns the ankle a little bit, loses the next, what, six games and the match to, an, I mean, on fire, Pliskova. Carolina Pliskova can play lights out tennis. but And then comes to the press and is just so calm and put together and just so mellow almost. While fans were more outraged than she was about this foot fault situation, which no one even really, I don't know, I, I didn't even really notice it, but I think you should be able to challenge foot fault. I think you should be able to get a replay and a slow-mo, you know, instant replay during the match, and then if it's not a foot fault, you get that serve again. I think that the foot fault uh, challenge will eventually be implemented, knowing to just seeing how much they're implementing with the challenges in general and uh, the serve clock. There are certain things that I think are going to make the, the game more exciting. I will say, though, she does say in her press conference, she says something along the lines of, I'm usually not great at taking losses. But all credit to Pliskova. I mean, she did play lights out. She was hitting lines when push came to shove. I mean, it's very common for players when they're down. They're down 5-1. They're down 5-2. I mean, I've always been told that 5-2 is not a great scoreline because your opponent can just come out and be like, all right, I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to go out here, and I'm just going to start going for my shots more than before. And that was one of the things I noticed with Pliskova. She was just like... You know what? She took advantage of the fact that Serena did sprain her ankle a little bit. You could tell that it was bothering her. By no means am I taking anything away from Pliskova's win. She won fair and square. But yeah, I think the challenge will come through for the foot fault soon. It just seems like a natural progression. 
And the the shot clock, no one really talks about that as much anymore, even though Nadal and Djokovic were playing each other for the first time with the new shot clock. It was a non-issue, for what I can tell. But one of the other new rules that came into play was the new 10-point tiebreaker at 6-all. And this was like... I think a massive uproar, having all four slams be different ways of ending. People kind of go crazy when things change. And in the end, only six matches went the distance. It wasn't even that big of a deal. But one of them, the first one was Katie Bolter beating Ekaterina Makarova and not knowing she hadn't yet won the match. She thought it was to seven. Very awkward. But she ended up winning. It was all all good. I did not watch that. Holy cow. Yeah, it was at... um, I think she went got 7-4 maybe or 7-5. So it was pretty tight third set tiebreaker and she thought she'd won the match and she went to celebrate and everything. And then she had to compose herself and win three more points. But she did it. She did it. It was all... It was all Good for her, man. It's not easy. It worked, it worked out. But, I mean, to, to be the first match doing it and they tell you in the... Obviously, when the warm-up, they tell you it's to 10. So you, you hear it, but you're not really listening at that point. It's like when you're going on the airplane and you're having the, the safety precautions speech. No one's listening. So there's only six matches that went the distance, but the one that really sucks out to me is Kane Shikori playing against Pablo Carreno Busta. They're in this fifth set. It's uh, 8-5 for Carreno Busta. And in this point, he goes for a forehand passing shot, and it would have it would have probably been a winner, but it clips the net. And Kane goes over to put, a, put the ball away, like an easy put away. Carreno Busta is running the opposite direction, no chance of getting it. But as the ball, the Carreno Busta passing shot bounces after clipping the net, Kane goes to hit the ball, and a little bit late, the umpire, or the, sorry, the Lions judge, calls out. So, of course, Carreno Busta challenges it. But it turns this whole big thing because the umpire says, oh, sorry, um, the point's Nishikori's. Which, to me, was completely incorrect because if the ball was called out but was actually in, isn't that always going to be a replay? I think in the heat of the moment, after, I think, almost like five hours of playing... There is such a thing as called human error. That's all that it was. The umpire was clearly not aware of the situation at hand. He probably must have heard it wrong, seen it wrong, whatever it was. It was probably not a good call. He probably did get reprimanded a little bit afterwards. I, On his side, I see what he was trying to say. He's like, you know what? You wouldn't have gotten there anyway. I understand that. But even on a serve, if it's an ace, it's a clear ace, and they call it out and it's overruled, it's your point. If it's a big serve that you barely get over and they have to overrule it, they have to replay the point. If you were on the ball, I get it. You have to replay the point. But this one was tough because it was out and he challenged. Like, it should be a replay every single time. It doesn't matter whether or not he was on the ball or not. And I've never, I mean, I've, I've watched Karina Busta for years. I've following his career. He's a top 30 player for a while, but I've never really... He's never really made headlines before, and to make headlines kind of for the first time for this was was insane because he lost his mind. He was up 8-5, loses the next four points. Nishikori hit an ace on match point, so that's all credit to him, obviously, for sticking it out and for, for fighting back, of course. But then Busta goes and just loses his mind, screaming, throwing his bag. People don't really throw their bags. That's not really... That doesn't really happen. You throw your racket... You know, maybe you kick some stuff around, but you don't really throw your full tennis bag. So not the coolest way for him to go out, but he apologized in the press. He was such a gentleman. I mean, it's all, it's water under the bridge at this point. But it was one of those things where you're like, how did this all happen? And in a fifth set deciding tiebreaker, which I kind of, I'm happy with the rule. I don't know. What, what's, I don't know if you prefer the matches never ending, but I like the rule. It's easier to work and cover these matches. It's easier to plan watching them. And it's kind of exciting when you see it coming. 
I think that the 10-point tiebreaker might actually be implemented into the rest of the slams, believe it or not. Whether or not Wimbledon decides to do something, I mean, they've always decided to do something kind of different anyway. But yeah, it kind of prepares you. It's also, you also have to think about the matches afterwards. Because if you're following a match that is six all in the third or in the fifth, like back in the day, you'd be like, all right, let's see who's going to break first. Like you just had no idea. Now you know that like it can happen very quick. Like 10 points can really happen exceptionally quick. So I will say on Corona Busta, a lot of players had his back. It was very nice to see, like, Ferrer, Arubarena, like, a lot of Spanish players were coming out and saying, like, you're a heck of a person, like, don't even worry about it. It's a heat of a moment. You can do a lot of stuff and a lot of crap that you probably wouldn't do if you weren't five hours into playing a tennis match and just got robbed the call. He deserves a pass. Absolutely deserves a pass. But like you said, you just said, in the the matches that don't end, the matches that don't have a tiebreaker, who's going to crack first? Not who's going to step up and win this match and be playing the best tennis after these five hours. It's who's going to crack first and fall apart and just die, basically. So I'm I'm happy with the tiebreaker. I think it's exciting. I much prefer it. But there's also another, I don't know, memorable moment or more like dramatic moment was the Garbine-Muguruza-Johanna Conta match, um, which started after midnight and ended at 3.15 in the morning. And they were both upset because why would they start at midnight? Why would you put someone through this? I mean, physically, it's not right to be playing at tennis at 3 a.m. So what's your take? Because I think it's I think it's just makes no sense whatsoever. Look, all I know is that we got one of the most amazing women's matches out of that. I mean, don't get me wrong. They probably would have played amazing had they played the next day. But the stats on that match were just extraordinary. The level of play was insane to be playing at 2.30, 2.45 in the morning at that level was insane. And the amount of people that stayed, like, that just I, that just warmed my heart. I was just like, you guys are solid people staying until 3.15 in the morning. Like, good luck getting home at this hour. Like, it is just, those are true fans right there. And I loved it. I mean, I was watching, I was so enthralled into this match. I was just like, holy cow, I was gutted for Conta because, I mean, she was playing lights out too. And, oh, it was, it was an amazing match. That's all I have to say. So true. It was one of the best matches of the tournament, but it's just a little bit unfortunate that it happened at 3 a.m. But you mentioning the fans are still there. Australia has the most incredible fans. I know that we're not supposed to be super biased about Grand Slams, but Australian Open is just incredible. Like, the way it's set up, it's like the equivalent of having the U.S. Open in Central Park. It's so centrally located. You can walk there from your hotel, and it's just so fun. People come for the atmosphere. They come to, like, hear the live music and have a good time. And, yes, they're going to watch tennis, and they're going to be into it. But the fans are just so unique, and they're so into it. It adds such a special. It makes it so special, which, even though it was 3.15 a.m., it was still very special, I think, for both of them. Obviously, I know as an American player, I should be saying the U.S. Open, but even if you ask U.S. Open officials and U.S. Open players, like, hey, what's your favorite slam? Chances are it's going to be Australia. It's it's, it's mainly just the vibe that you get from the people. Like in New York, you have a lot of tough people that just, it's just not the same. You can't really describe it unless you actually go to Australia and see what the people are like and see how they treat you. And it's just like, yeah, good day, mate. Like, it's just... It's just every time I go there, I just get so excited. Like, I I get excited just talking about it. And the idea of landing in Newark or LaGuardia just gives me anxiety. So it's like two different kinds of feelings. And yeah, it just keeps getting better and better every single year. The locker rooms got different this year. They upgraded everything. It just, oh, can't wait for you to see it next year. 
I know. I, I hope. I plan on going next year. It's way easier to cover it when you're in the right time zone. I know it's a pain to get to because it is probably 24 hours for anyone, wherever you're flying from. But once you're there, it's just so worth it. I feel like we're really raving about the Australian Open. But to be fair, there's an American player that probably should be saying, oh, the U.S. Open's my favorite. Danielle Collins is someone that has played, I think, three U.S. Opens, maybe four at this point. Uh, she won wild card into it three times. Lost her opening round all three times, but comes to the Australian Open in her debut, her main draw debut, and makes the semifinals. I don't want to put words in her mouth, but the Australian Open is going to have a special place in her heart for the rest of her career, I think, no matter what happens next, because that's just an absolutely incredible fortnight for her. And I've interviewed her a few times in the U.S. Open when she was winning these wild cards. She won NCAA singles title two years in a row to get the, the main draw wild card, and then she won this like college event, I think it was 2016, that gave her a qualifying wild card for 2017, and then now she's obviously top 30 and making her own her own way to the main draw, no problems. But seeing someone who's such an incredible standout college player make the semifinals of a Grand Slam, it's just incredible. It's like the Steve Stevie Johnson basically, although he hasn't gone that far. Man, all props to Collins. Like she just played lights out too. I watched her second round match against Sasha Vickery, and just from then on, I mean, she was just steamrolling people. And I think one thing that stands out, uh, and she said it herself, she's feisty, um, she loves to compete. One of the most important things that I think just kind of stuck with me, she's like, I love to make it a war. I love to make it so competitive. I love those moments. And that's what you don't hear from a lot of players. A lot of times, you know, you just hear like, oh, I like the grind, like um, it was a tough match today. But you don't hear, I love it when it gets tough. And for her to come out and say that and just make the semifinals and she stayed stayed true to herself and also another thing I noticed when she was actually talking about her opponents and the way she played, she's super, super objective, super observant of how she played. Like she could recall different points and different plays that she probably could have done a little better on these points and the and, and, and those plays. And uh I also saw highlights of her playing Kavitova in Brisbane they just played like the week before hell of a match as well like I was super gutted for her too because I mean first Australian Open and making semis that's that's a good run that can set you up for a while it's an incredible run there's been quite a few Americans doing well at the Australian Open in recent years and this year we've had a few semi-finalists but with her especially I watched her first match and she was playing Julia Gorgas and she was down like, a lot, and they went to a second set tiebreaker, which she could have easily lost. Instead, she wins second set tiebreaker and manages to pull this match out. A massive, I think it was the first upset of the slam, and then doesn't look back and just keeps going. And it's one of those things, like, I think you really have to believe in yourself because you're like, I'm a college player, I'm 25 years old. You know, maybe do I belong in the top 100? Do I belong in the top 200? And it's like, no, dude, you belong in the top, almost top 20 now. Like, why not? Why not be the one that pushes these boundaries? We've had college players do well in doubles. We've had college players, you know, obviously I mentioned Steve Johnson and Kevin Anderson also went to college but didn't finish, which is fine. It's just a different different category, I guess, if you will. And it, 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 I don't know. I'm, I'm inspired by it. But in general, usually Americans don't do that well in Australia because it's so far and they're so far removed. And it's just so early in the season. But I thought this was a really good showing for Americans. I mean, we even had Jan Brady and Allison Risk make the semis and doubles very casually. Francis Tiafo, Grand Slam breakthrough, hands down. Best celebrations of all time as well. I mean, you know Francis a little bit because he's in Lake Nona. It, it, how cool is it to see him 
show his personality off to the world and not just his tennis, but like everything about him is just so endearing. Like you just want him to do well. I, I just love Francis, like whether he plays tennis ever again. I mean, I can't understand him half the time when he's talking. But other than that, he's just like one of the coolest kids like ever. Always trying to make um, a good time out of anything. I mean, if we're running sprints and like it's 90 million degrees outside, like he's still trying to make jokes and just making everybody feel good. And that's the one of the things that you love to have in a program, like as a coach and as a director of tennis. I mean, that's what you want. You don't want someone that's super sad and annoyed and upset all the time. He just brings so much energy and so much light. And just to see him break through and just it got so emotional when he said he was like, you know, I, I promised my parents that I was going to change their lives one day. And I mean, it's just like, oh, just broke my heart and just warmed my heart rather. And uh, it's so great just to see someone that, you know, I mean, we used to live in the same building and to see someone that's relatively close to do so well, it's just very happy for him. He's just such a nice guy. Always going to say hello to people he knows. Like he's just so down to earth. His girlfriend goes to UCLA, so I'm probably a little biased because that's where I went to school. But in any case, I thought it was just an incredible, incredible fortnight. And then one more American player I want to talk about is Amanda Anasimova. I find her her game is incredible. She's tall. She's powerful. She's not afraid. And she's just so poised. But the interesting thing is her big breakthrough was Indian Wells last year. Um, I think she made the fourth round. She beat Kvitova, which is a massive thing. for At the time, she was 16. And then she has a five-month injury break where she hurt her foot was in a boot crutches missed most of the year I mean that's a massive setback for someone who's a 17 year old comes back at the Australian Open basically and just kills it so that is just a show of maturity I think and dedication and just having the patience at that age I think is is, is really really telling Amanda yeah she's great I've actually hit with her a couple times and there were a few times where I was just like all right I'm gonna stand by the fence and I'm just going to go down the middle because you're hitting the ball way too hard for me. Yeah, she's one of those ball strikers where you're just like, she's another like Maddie Keys and Kavita would just hit the ball so freaking clean from anywhere on the court. And it's just, there were so many times I was watching her play Sharenko in the second round, I think. And Sharenko's a good player. She's top 40, top 50 player. Been around for a long time. Has handled power hitters before. And Sharenko at one point is just looking at her coach like, can I please leave? Can I please get off this court? Amanda just was not missing a ball, and the greatest thing what I noticed was that she was up like 5-0, and she missed like one ball, and got upset. I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, girl, you're upset, 5-0, like, I think you're doing okay, but that just goes to show the level of competitiveness. She's like, I'm not going to give an inch. She didn't want to give an inch, so that shows a lot. I wouldn't be surprised if we see her doing really well in these upcoming slams, too. Her on grass, that's going to be dirty. It is. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so I only have one more topic I want to address that as, as like someone that has been working in tennis for so long, this doesn't jar me at all, but hearing my friends comment on this is really quite funny. Why does Nike and Adidas and all these big brands make all the players wear the exact same outfits? So wearing the exact same shirt, the exact same shorts, the exact same headband, the exact same wristband, the exact same shoes. And it kind of throws some new fans off because they're like, who's who? What's happening here? So... Nike had this one outfit and everyone's wearing the exact same thing pretty much or a variation of it. And it just it just seems like, I don't know, like you could be a bit more creative and m- mix things up or is it because the Nike and Adidas tells you, here's a bag of seven outfits. This is what you're wearing. This is what you get. That's it. So for every slam, Nike will actually give you a luggage right before the slam at the slam. So they disperse all the stuff like there. Um, 
it's very rarely they'll just send it directly to your house. But what happens is the amount of players that you have, imagine trying to make different outfits for everyone. It's just impossible. Um, there's a few players that obviously just have their own stuff. That's the Feds, the Sharapovas, the Serenas, the Nadals, and maybe a few others. Um, a lot of times, this, I mean, just from a business management point, I mean, they're not going to be making 47 different outfits. That's just not the case. Um, sometimes they'll give you the option, like, ah, oh, do you want a sleeveless? Do you want a long sleeve? Like, sometimes they might, uh, but a lot of times it's just like, here you go. This is what you're wearing. And I get it. It may probably throw a few people off, but what I have noticed is that ESPN's been doing this a lot. They'll be constantly putting the name and the flag of the player as they're switching sides when they're wearing the same thing, just to make sure you know, like, hey, by the way, in case you weren't sure, these are the people that you're watching, and this is where they're at, and this is where they're from. These are their names. So, yeah, that's pretty much it. It's second nature for us to know the difference between these players, but I, I just, I just, I just could see people struggling and just arguing why would they all wear the same thing? That's crazy. I'm like, it's not crazy. It makes perfect sense financially and as a as a business trying to get your brand out there. I mean, that's how it's gonna be. You can't all be Bethany Maddox Sands wearing your own your own specially created line, which is badass, by the way. Okay, I think that's it for this episode. We are glad to be back and really looking forward to seeing the next storylines unfold in the coming weeks, um, as well as getting some more guests on, so stay tuned. This has been the Inside the Tour podcast on Tennis.com. I've been Nina Pantic. And I've been Irina Falcone. Thanks so much for listening. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com. 